We as human beings have a, a thirst for scandal. Whether it's uh, in sales of tabloids or, um, or just the ways, the things that catch our attention as we're scrolling through social media, uh, even the sensationalism of otherwise fairly accurate journalism uh, by people who really seek to do a good job and tell us the truth, but the way things are presented are to grab our attention. Uh, we have a thirst for scandal. Sometimes I think we find comfort in it uh, because when rich and famous people have problems in their lives, it makes us feel like, oh, see, my life isn't so bad. Sometimes I think we find some comfort in it just from the distraction that our sins aren't public and theirs are. As Pastor Kirk uh, shared with us, reminded us, us of last week, uh, one of the evidences that people use to demonstrate the validity of Scripture and how much we can depend and trust it is that it tells us the blatant truth about all the people involved, that there are n literally no human heroes in the Bible. They're just real people like you and me. God is the only hero. He's the only one who's always good. And the same thing is true for King David, the greatest king over God's people, the king over Judah and Israel. The beginning of his life uh, is a super-duper success story. He's just a, a young shepherd boy, uh, kind of overlooked uh, from his other brothers, it seems, at times. But he was faithful and he was good. He was strong. He defended his sheep against bears and, and other predators. As his brothers went off to war to serve the king, he would bring supplies to them and serve them. And he became friends with the prince, Jonathan. Eventually, he would have opportunity to serve King Saul himself. As a, um, as a Philistine giant challenged the Israelite army to battle, there were no warriors in the army willing to go to fight Goliath. But this little shepherd boy heard about it. He was like, who is going to talk to our God like that? And he volunteered. He was too small to wear the armor, so he went almost unprotected, apart from going with God himself. He fought the Philistine giant and won. Eventually, he found his place serving right alongside the king, leading the king's armies into battle. And he had success after success after success, so much so that the king started to get crazy and get a little extra anxious and feel like feel threatened by David, even though he was totally loyal to the king. So the king chased after him and tried to kill him, and God protected him. And eventually, God protected David. I should be clear about which pronoun reference that is. And eventually, God anointed David to be the new king over his people. Under King, under king David's leadership, 
the family of God was reunited as Israel and Judah were reunited into one kingdom. It was powerful. It was glorious. But the second part, the, the tail end of David's life, is characterized by chaos and hardship, brokenness. We see it in his family. We see discord growing in the kingdom. At least two of David's sons try to kill him and challenge him for the throne. And the turning point seems to come right here for us at 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 where the greatest king over God's people takes part in a scandal worthy of modern-day politics. So as we reflect this morning on the life of David and this, this event, and I, I know I was away last week, but I also know that you talked about this last week too, but we're going to approach it slightly differently. But... Uh, I think God has some more uh, to say to us in, in these t- couple chapters. So I invite you to open up to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, we'll just read the first few verses. It's a little bit fascinating, I think, to consider that God devotes pretty much two chapters in the history of the kings, uh, two chapters of David's story to this event that in many ways, is summarized in about three verses. It happened very quickly, but it's super significant for us to reflect on as we understand what God is doing in David's life, but also as we understand the battle for our own hearts as well. Second Samuel chapter 11, starting at verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. But David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. So as we continue reading in the next couple chapters, uh, well, the rest of this chapter and the next, we see that This moment of sin now has this sudden risk of becoming a very great public scandal. Because this one night stand has led to a pregnancy. And everyone knows that the woman's husband is out to battle. So David calls out, sends a messenger to the commander and says, send Uriah home. He's hoping that Uriah will be so elated for the respite from battle that he'll come and spend some time with his wife. But Uriah is too honorable to do that. He just sleeps outside the palace with the king's servants. David's surprised to learn that, and so he invites 
Uriah back and says, come dine with me. I'll send you back to the battle tomorrow, but um, come dine with me. And David tries to get him drunk. Well, he accomplishes it according to the account. But even in his drunken stupor, Uriah still doesn't go home. He stays outside the palace. Uriah is too honorable to do what David needs him to do in order to cover up David's sin. So David sends Uriah back out into battle with a message to the commander that says, put this guy in a place where we know he's going to die. David has him killed to cover up his sin. And so as we reflect on this experience in David's life, It's an important time for us to reflect on our own sin and God's interaction with us in the midst of it. We find that David is a man after God's own heart. It's fascinating to know that he's described that way in Scripture in a couple places. David was a man after God's own heart, but his heart didn't match God's. He's not the same as God. He's not as good as God. He's broken and sinful. He has a dark in his heart like we do. God is the only hero in our story. In the story in this account, he's the only hero in our lives as well. He's the one that we need and he's the one we can depend on. As we said, uh, there are no heroes in Scripture. The Jesus Storybook Bible describes that really well in in, uh, the opening section, the introduction uh, called The Story and the Song. There's a section where, oh, I thought I would be able to read that. (laughs) It says, other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. And the Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they are downright mean. And so we learn from David that temptation is common and it's powerful. First Corinthians ten thirteen says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now, we can see this progression in David's life. And it starts even before the event. It's described for us in the spring at the times when kings go out to war. David is basking in the glory and he's so, in this moment, like he's been so humble in so many times, in so many moments. But it seems at this point, He's just kind of basking in the glory and the wonder of his kingdom. And he sends all his troops out to battle, but he decides to just bask in the respite and the privilege of being king and stay back. And so as he sent most of the able-bodied men out into battle, he's hanging out at the palace in Jerusalem with a city full of women. One night, one evening, 
He gets up from his afternoon nap. He's wandering around on the roof. He sees this beautiful woman bathing. And you can see the progression of temptation that we experience in our own lives. We kind of get settled in ourselves and feel pretty confident. Then we're faced with this moment where there's a fork in the road and we can do this or we can do that. We can do the righteous thing or we can follow into the darkness. And as the verse tells us in 1 Corinthians, God provides a way out. The challenge for us is that the easiest way to find out, find the way out, is when we recognize the fork in the road. Right? We haven't gone anywhere yet. We just know we can either go this way or that way. But once we start walking in the darkness, there's a little bit more foliage around us, and we have to find harder and harder paths to get back to the righteous, lighted way. It gets darker and darker around us. It gets harder and harder to find our way, and we feel a little bit more trapped. So David sees this beautiful woman, and he sends a messenger to find out who she is. He gets the report who her dad is, who her husband is. And even as David reflects on the fact that he has at least five wives at this point, mothers of his children, many of them, uh, even though he knows this woman is married to one of his soldiers fighting in battle for him right now, something in him can't escape fact that he just wants this woman now. So he calls for her, and when the king calls for you, you come. The little parenthetical note in the text tells us that she's in the fertile time of her monthly cycle, and she gets pregnant. Then David finds himself caught in the darkness and he tries to make it look like he's in the light. Because he knows what he wants to do. He knows who he wants to be. He knows how the people know and revere him. And he doesn't want that to break. So he tries to make it look like the child will be the son, the child of the father, the, the child of the husband instead. But it doesn't work. So he has the husband killed. And even in this depth and darkness of sin, falling prey to temptation after temptation, eventually in chapter 12, as Nathan the prophet comes to him, David still knows what righteousness is. He hears this story about this rich man who stole this precious lamb from a poor person. And David's enraged. He knows what the difference between right and wrong. And Nathan says very clearly, you're the one. You're the man. You're the sinner. David's broken, and we get this beautiful psalm that gives us language to confess our sin. Psalm 51 that we read part of this morning. No temptation has come to us except what is common to all people. 
We all have the darkness in our hearts. We all have this old sin nature that just wants to break us. And as we're told in 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9, finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repeat. I copied the wrong verse. Um, uh, oh, that's why, because I put the wrong reference up there. Um, so, just a minute, let me tell you the truth. Well, I mean, that's the truth, too. It's just not the one I'm talking about. Um, first Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We see it in David's life. We know it in our own as well. But then verse 9 says, Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Resist the devil. And yet, in 2 Timothy, and I think this one's going to be correct, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, Paul is writing to this young pastor, Timothy, and says, Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. It's fascinating to me that Scripture teaches us to stand up and resist the devil as he comes prowling around, but as we experience temptation and the evil desires of youth, we're just told to run away. Don't try to prove how strong you are. Just get out of there. Just, God has provided a path. Take it. Run fast. But if the evil one shows up, you can tell him where to go. But if you recognize temptation in your life, run from it and stay safe. Eventually, Bathsheba has her child, and God has told David that the child will die as a consequence of his sin. But eventually, they have another child, and that child is born, and they name him Solomon, which means peace. It comes from the root of Shalom. But then God also sends a message through Nathan to name the child Jedidiah. And you'll find that uh, Solomon, I think, in Kings is referred to as Solomon, and in Chronicles he's referred to as Jedidiah. Maybe that's not totally consistent, but you'll see it sometimes at least. Jedidiah means loved by the Lord. So after this intense scandal and being in the darkness, being a hero, a human hero who's failed, God shows up in David's life and reminds him that God is still with him, that he's all that David needs. And that this son, born out of brokenness, born out of grief, 
over sin is also a symbol of restoration, of peace, and a sign of God's deep love that the covenant of grace extends beyond David's brokenness. Our true hero, Jesus, is exactly who we need. As we reflect on these key characters in the story, now they're historical people and this actually happened. We don't want to pretend that they're just made up for us, but at the same time, they can be symbolic for us as we try to find ourselves and find Jesus in our story. We might be in a place where we identify with David. We know that we're the sinner, we're the perpetrator. We allowed our own pride and our selfishness to infect and hurt other people. Now certainly, this story is a reminder that our sin is never private. It's never totally personal. It always affects other people. Not necessarily in the totally bold and dramatic ways that we see the ripples of David's sin here. But whether it's just the guilt and shame that we're wrestling with that affects the way we react and relate to other people. If it's the lies that we tell that try to cover up that affect other people. But our sin is never private. It never only affects us. It's never only just between us and God or only between us and other people. It's fascinating as we look at Psalm 51, as David reflects on his sin with Bathsheba, he says, to you and you only have I sinned. I broke my relationship with you, my Lord, because of the way that I treated this woman. So we might identify with David, recognize our sin, and feel convicted by it. We might also feel like Bathsheba, someone who has been the victim of somebody else's sin. Someone else's pride and selfishness has hurt us. We might feel unseen. We might be in pain. We might also identify with Uriah. This guy who was doing all the right and noble and honorable things. He made the right choices each time. He was faithful to his wife. He was loyal to his king. And when even his king invited him to go home and just enjoy the benefits of being home, he was like, my comrades are sleeping in tents and they're out fighting. There's no way that I'm going to go home and feel comfy while the Ark of the Covenant and God's warriors themselves are out in trouble. And yet, Uriah died as a result of this sin by David. And there are times that we might be on a path, we know that we're broken and sinful and we're never totally righteous in all that we do, but there are times that we are doing all the right things and yet 
It's the weight of other people's sins and the consequences of their sin and the weight of the sin in the world that attacks us and destroys a significant thing in our lives that we've loved and valued and worked so hard honorably to protect. We were faithful, but someone else was unfaithful. We have been seeking after the Lord and trying to do the things that He's called us to do, and yet we're the ones who've been swept up in the consequences of the sin. And I think God has a word for each one of us, whichever one of these people we identify with. So a word to David comes from Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. First, I think it's important that we hear the word from Nathan himself. You are the one. Okay, as we're, as we're David, sometimes we're not contrite David, we're just proud, comfortable David. And we need to hear the convicting word that God has for us. That there is no one righteous, not even one apart from him, and that we are all desperate for a Savior. But Jesus has come to us. And so as we experience the conviction of our sin, this is what we're reminded of in Scripture. That when you were dead in your sins, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, you were apart from God. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Jesus is our hero, and he's exactly who we need. And when we find ourselves convicted in our sin, when we identify with David, the word from the Lord is Jesus has died on the cross to take our sins away. His love has not left the building with our faithlessness. And the word to Bathsheba comes from this beautiful verse, in Psalm 34, 18. I'm sure there are plenty others. But if you're feeling broken and trampled on, if the sin of someone else has attacked you, hear this word, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And saves those who are crushed in spirit. God sees you and he knows you. And he can bring beauty out of the ashes. And he loves to do it. He will do miracles in you. As you go to him. And he will chase you down and encourage you to come. Even when you don't know that you can find the strength. In a word to Uriah, for those of you who are in a place where you feel just devastated by the brokenness in your life, even though you were so committed to taking the right steps and being honorable all along the way, when you sinned, you confessed it. You were up front. You tried to make the honorable choices and take the high road. And still the consequences of the sin in the world or the intentions of some other person have led to destruction in something you've loved. Part of your life. 
Remember that Jesus said in John 16.33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul also, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives us valuable words. Verses 7-9 through nine say, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. God is with us. As we jump down to verse 16, it continues. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even as we see this devastation and destruction in our lives, even as we fear persecution, even as we see the threats all around us, even as we grieve the loss of something dear to us that should not have been taken away. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them. Let me read that again. In the context of eternity, our, our, our troubles here are considered light and momentary, not because they're insignificant, but because they don't last forever and they don't define us. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. As we examine the heart of a king, we recognize the scandal in our own lives, the darkness in our own hearts. We recognize that we need a king who's perfect who has a pure heart, and Jesus is that King. He's our prophet, our priest, and our King. He rules over us. He can atone for our sins. He tells us the truth and leads us to hope. So wherever we find ourselves in this journey today, whether it's relating to David, or Bathsheba, or Uriah, in the brokenness of our sin. Jesus has entered into our scandal and called us as ones who are loved by God that we might have peace and hope in Him. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You today. And these are heavy things to think about. We love to sing songs that help us remind, help remind us of how great and awesome you are and distract us from the pain of where we are. But we also need to have honest conversations like we have in Psalm 51 
say, against you, Lord, you only have I sinned. But blot out my iniquities. Cleanse me and give me a pure heart. Lord Jesus, you are enough for us. In this, in this season, as we prepare for the celebration of Easter and we reflect on your sacrifice of even leaving glory to be among us, but so much more than that, that you were willing to take on our sin that totally belongs to us and not to you, to die in our place so that as we trust in you, we would be set free. But not just unburdened, made whole, restored, made perfect in you, credited and experiencing your righteousness before the Father. Lord, make it true in us. Lord, as we come to the forks in the road, we pray that you'd make it clear to us which way is the easy way toward you. It's never easy, but it's clear right before we start. If we find ourselves in the mess of the darkness, Lord, we pray that you'd still light the path and call us out and set us free. Lord, we thank you. You alone are faithful. You always are. And you're with us every step we go. In Jesus' name, amen.